Warning, this episode will be discussing the events of May 24th, 2022, that took place at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. This case involves the violent deaths of 21 innocent lives, including 19, 9, 10, and 11-year-old fourth graders and two teachers. While some of the details may be disturbing to some listeners, and we will examine the background of the perpetrator of this tragedy, we will mainly be focusing on the failed law enforcement response and the ensuing fallout. The individual who carried out this mass shooting will be known only as the attacker, the shooter, the perpetrator, or whatever choice words I may want to call him as we go along. There are also some incidents involving animal cruelty, which I will provide you a prompt to fast forward when we get to it. Listener discretion is advised. Nevea Bravo, Jacqueline Cazares, McKenna Elrod, Jose Flores Jr., Eliana Garcia, Uzziah Garcia, Amory Garza, Xavier Lopez, Jace Luivanos, Tess Mata, Miranda Mathis, Alethea Ramirez, Annabelle Rodriguez, Maite Rodriguez, Alexandria Rubio, Leila Salazar, Jalia Silguero, Alina Torres, Rogelia Torres, Irma Garcia, and Eva Morales. These are the names of the 19 children and their two teachers who were murdered in what is known as the Robb Elementary School shooting, which took place in the late morning of Tuesday, May 24, 2022. Another 18 people were injured, 14 children, one teacher, two members of law enforcement, and the perpetrator's grandmother. One motive for this attack at Robb Elementary School has been determined to be the desire for fame and notoriety. The attacker was born on May 16, 2004 in Fargo, North Dakota. His mother was originally from Uvalde and his father, her boyfriend at the time, the two of them had one older child together, a girl. Shortly after the attacker was born, they broke up and from that point forward, the father had little to do with him and his sibling. His mother typically worked as a server at various restaurants in Uvalde, and while she played an active role in the attacker's life early on, her relationship with both of her children soured over time. Mom struggled with drug addiction and other unspecified personal issues. However, her criminal history only consists of a 2005 theft conviction and a dismissed 2007 domestic violence arrest. A former girlfriend of the attacker, when interviewed, stated that she believed he was sexually abused as a child, but his mother did not believe him. Where the attacker's mother and father fell short, his grandmother picked up the slack. She was a well-regarded and well-liked Uvalde resident, especially within the school district where she was employed for 27 years. At the time her grandson shot her in the face, she was 66 years old. She had pretty much become the main maternal figure in the lives of the attacker and his sister, particularly as they got into their teenage years. The attacker has been described by members of his family as quiet and shy. 
He was reluctant to interact with his peers because he struggled with a speech impediment. His family struggled with poverty, but according to the official investigative report on this mass shooting, so does 86% of the families within the Uvalde school district. There were times when the attacker had to wear the same clothes to school several days in a row. Being a former student at Robb Elementary himself, the attacker was described by his former teachers as a pleasure to have in class, a wonderful student, ready to learn, that he worked hard and had a positive attitude. However, his assessments showed that he was consistently behind academically compared to his classmates, and by the time he was in the third grade, he was identified as being at risk because of poor test scores. His records indicated that someone requested he receive speech therapy. The attacker's own internet searches revealed that he looked for information on dyslexia, but in the end, the attacker received no additional help, therapy, or special education services. None of these factors are uncommon for hundreds of thousands of people across the United States for as long as we have been sending our children to public schools, nor are any of these factors even remotely close to being any sort of excuse or reasoning behind what this attacker did. Fourth grade marked a significant year for the attacker at Robb Elementary based on his actions on the day he murdered 21 innocent people. The shooting took place in his own fourth grade classroom. In the weeks leading up to the shooting, the attacker talked about having bad memories of the fourth grade to a friend. However, a couple of different narratives have been taken into consideration regarding this. His fourth grade teacher remembered the attacker well and was at the school in a different classroom at the time of the shooting. She said that she understood the attacker was in need of extra help in her class because he said that he was being bullied. She met with the attacker's mother regarding the mother's concerns over the bullying at that meeting, the teacher promised his mother that his fourth grade year would be a good one. According to his teacher, it was. She indicated that she felt like her classroom was a safe place for the attacker and that he made friends with his classmates. Members of the attacker's family disputed his teacher's assessment of his experience in fourth grade. They said that he continued to be bullied throughout the entire school year because of his stutter the way that he dressed, and the way that he cut his hair. A cousin of the attacker, who was close in age and in the same fourth grade class as him, corroborated this. She recalled an incident where another girl in the class tied the attacker's shoelaces together, causing him to fall and injure his face. Other members of his family reported that they believed his teachers picked on both him and his cousin. Despite this, According to notes found in the attacker's own phone, the bullying began in middle school. Again, not an uncommon thing to happen to children. His experiences are in no way extraordinary or unique. By the time the attacker was 14 years old, his school records indicated that he had a steep decline in attendance, racking up more than 100 absences a year starting in 2018. He consistently earned failing grades and earned increasingly dismal scores on standardized tests and final exams. To me, the responsibility for this falls on everyone, the attacker's parents, his family, the school, the justice system, these so-called 
school success officers, and the attacker himself. The investigative report stated that while the Uvalde school district officers do try to bring truant kids to school, there are many Uvalde students who have spotty attendance and the local justice system does not consistently enforce truancy rules. School records also reflected little in the way of disciplinary action taken against the attacker, with the exception of one fight with another student that resulted in a three-day suspension. However, the attacker's truancy likely had a lot to do with the fact that he had little disciplinary history. You have to be in school to get in trouble in school. By the time the attacker was 17, he had only completed the ninth grade. On October 28, 2021, Uvalde High School involuntarily withdrew the attacker from school, citing poor academic performance and lack of attendance. Prior to the shooting, 2021 was a year students in Uvalde, as well as across the United States, were returning to in-person classes due to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, it was the year the shooter dropped out of school and began heading down what is described as a dark path. In early years, notes on his phone revealed that he failed to fit in with other students, that he had exhibited a fixation with his fitness and weight leading to an eating disorder, and by 2021, the attacker had become increasingly withdrawn and isolated. One of his mother's ex-boyfriends described the attacker as a loner who would often punch holes in his bedroom walls whenever he argued with his mom. His sister had already graduated from high school and moved out of the home. His best and likely only friend was living an hour and a half away in San Antonio, Texas. The attacker did not have a driver's license or a car. His relatives reported that earlier in 2021, some of his former friends jumped him. Subsequent to that, he tried teaching himself boxing and martial arts, practicing in his room with a heavy bag. In mid-2021, the attacker and his girlfriend broke up. She described him as lonely and depressed, constantly mocked and teased by his friends who called him school shooter. He repeatedly told his girlfriend that he would not live past the age of 18, that he was either going to take his own life or that he just wouldn't live long. After the breakup, the attacker began harassing his ex-girlfriend and her friends. He began wearing black clothing, combat boots, and he grew his hair long and was often unkempt. He was active on various social media platforms. He networked with some of his peers and belonged to several chat groups. He played a variety of video games, and his usernames across all of these platforms and activities reflected themes of confrontation and revenge. The attacker also began to show an interest in gore and violent sex, often watching and sometimes sharing gruesome violent videos and images of suicides, beheadings, and accidents. He also began sending random and explicit messages to others that he was interacting with online. Those who played video games with the attacker reported that he would become enraged whenever he lost. He would make outrageous threats, particularly towards female players, whom he would frighten with graphic descriptions of rape and violence. He started to become more manipulative and controlling as 2021 wore on, and he was developing a much more aggressive and commanding personality than he did in person. He pretended to be more mature than he actually was, 
and he often had to Google information on things related to sex and sexual practices that others were talking about online. The attacker wrote about having trouble connecting to other people or feeling empathy. He often said that he wasn't human and often insulted others by calling them humans. Internet activity also reflected the attacker wondering if he was a sociopath as he searched around for information related to the condition. His internet searches resulted in him receiving an email about seeking treatment for sociopathy. So, dreamers, in the past, I felt like this is where men like this, it's their families that need to be more aware and vigilant about their troubling behaviors. As a parent, and you don't even need to be a parent to be in tune with what may be going on with a person that you know or care about. But speaking from a parent's perspective, if my child suddenly took a dark turn such as this, then I feel like somebody needed to intervene. Missing 100 days of school per year, seeing a drastic change in the way my kid was dressing, the dark clothing, the messy hair, becoming withdrawn, spending way too much time on the internet. I mean, this attacker checked a lot of boxes. And if someone had taken notice of the most obvious signs that something was going on, if they had begun paying closer attention, all of the other more troubling things going on with him could have been discovered. I'm not one who thinks taking devices away or restricting internet access is the answer, however. In fact, I tend to think that that makes things worse. This attacker needed help beyond that. Even he had enough self-awareness to recognize it based on his written notes and internet searches. And I don't know this to be fact, but I have a feeling that he didn't think he had access or resources to the kinds of help that he would need. He likely didn't have an understanding of how the mental health care system worked. He may have thought that because his family was poor, that help wasn't available to him. It didn't seem like anybody was making an effort to reach out to this young man, really at any point in his childhood or adolescence. So he was left to wallow in it by himself, probably with a great deal of hopelessness. His dad walked out. His mom was kind of around, but was consumed with drugs and her own problems. Eventually, after a falling out with his mother, he was sent to live with his grandparents. And yeah, taking all of that into consideration, how equipped are grandparents really to deal with contemporary teenage issues these days? I really think that that's something that needs to be taken a look at because children are increasingly being raised by other members of their family, especially those living in poverty. While this isn't exactly the same thing, I can give you an example from personal experience. I can't speak from the perspective of someone who grew up in poverty. Okay, let's get that straight. I wouldn't even know where to begin to relate, to be honest. But I will say this. I remember being particularly shocked when I discovered that one of my husband's former co-workers, who happened to be close to the same age as my own daughter, who was born in 1999, this young man had no idea how to use a computer. My husband literally had to teach him how to use their system at their job from scratch. He never had a computer or internet access regularly enough to gain the know-how. Yet he somehow graduated from high school without that fundamental skill and I have no idea how that happened. His family was poor 
The household had several generations and extended family all living together. He himself had a kid when he was only 16 years old. And the device that he relied on was pretty much his phone. Because of the situation that he was raised in, there are just certain basic aspects of everyday living that he did not have a grasp on. So I can imagine that this would be the case for many children raised in poverty-stricken areas like Uvalde. Granted, the attacker we are discussing did have the internet and computer and phone and gaming access. But perhaps those were things his grandmother provided him that she felt would keep him busy, stimulated and happy, maybe even his mom. Those are the go-to things for kids, right? Parents and grandparents aren't going to try to help their children by surprising them with a trip to the therapist. They're going to make them happy, they think, by giving them the newest video game or the latest iPhone, right? I mean, there are family members and grandparents and whatnot that might try to seek help for their grandchildren or their extended family member that they think is troubled if they recognize the need for it. I don't know what was going on inside this household, but I don't think it's a stretch to assume that this grandma probably didn't really know the harm that she may have been causing by giving her son carte blanche access to the outside world while he became increasingly more reclusive from inside the privacy of his bedroom. She had to have been looking and possibly recognize some of the red flags because they did get into fights. I'm not blaming her. I'm just pointing out how all of these circumstances came together just right for that perfect storm. You have an older generation, primary caregiver, poverty, lack of understanding, lack of resources, lack of access, and oh, the school system itself by letting this attacker and his family get away with his truancy. That's a huge problem because we've said it before, even recently, idle hands, right? Again, I have to reiterate that none of these circumstances are unique to this attacker and none of this in any way justifies his actions. If nothing else, knowing what we know about this attacker's background can help further the conversation about mental health and early intervention, especially when you have a killer who gets labeled at risk and school shooter before he ever even reached the age of 18. And while there are many lessons that can be learned here because we know so much about what happened, I would like to think that by now, getting close to 2023, that we don't need any more lessons like this. And we're just getting started. I mentioned at the beginning that one motive for this attacker's act of violence was a desire for fame and notoriety. There are a lot more issues going on here when it comes to society and violence that I really don't think I have time to get that deeply into right now. But there is a place on the internet for those who find images of violence, gore, abuse, animal cruelty, things of that sort, they find those things interesting and entertaining. I mean, there are those who are into fiction horror, but I'm not talking about that sort of stuff. I'm talking about the Luca Magnata type of violence and gore. That's the vibe I'm getting from my research into this attacker. Luca Magnata vibes. In fact, the shooter envied Luca. He became focused on achieving some level of notoriety, 
and he believed that he would be able to do so through TikTok and YouTube. His videos had pretty low numbers of views, but the fact that he had any views at all led him to tell people that he was famous and everybody else were randoms, that they were lucky to be interacting with him online. The attacker spoke enviously about the amount of publicity that Luca Magnata had received with Don't Fuck With Cats that came out on Netflix. I feel like Luca Magnata was pretty notorious and infamous prior to the documentary, but apparently the infamy was next level because of Netflix. This attacker was jealous of what he saw as Luca Magnata's fame. Of all the sick fucks, right? The Netflix documentary didn't traumatize me. It was a while ago when Sword and Scale did an episode on Magnata years ago that did. Toward the end of 2021, the attacker shared a video online that showed him driving around with a person he referred to as someone that he met on the internet. Okay, dreamers, we are coming up to the act of animal cruelty that I mentioned at the beginning. Skip ahead now 30 seconds to bypass it. Okay, here we go. That someone that the shooter was driving around with was holding a plastic bag that contained a dead cat. He threw the cat on the street and spit on it while the shooter laughed with delight. The video then showed the shooter wearing a tactical plate carrier and then it showed him pretending to fire a BB gun at people that they were passing by. In late 2021, the attacker got a job. The first place he was hired was at Whataburger. A friend's grandmother spotted him there, secretly snapped a pic of him and sent it to her grandson with a text message telling him that that was an example of what his life was going to be like if he quit school. It was a thing that the attacker had been told often, that he's a dropout and he's going to be flipping burgers for the rest of his life. One month after he was hired, the attacker was fired for threatening a female co-worker. He was next hired at a Wendy's, which ended in a similar manner. One of his co-workers there described him as not a good person, troubled, and someone who put himself inside a box and would not talk to or associate with anyone that he worked with. The one time that the attacker did try to talk to a co-worker, he wanted to discuss guns. But when that employee reacted negatively to the subject matter, the attacker threatened him and wanted to fight him. On occasion, the attacker would work for his grandfather's HVAC business, which he was paid in cash when he did. He lived at home. He had virtually no expenses or bills. So he began hoarding money and was telling select people that he was saving for something big and that one day they were going to see him in the news. His family thought he was saving money to get his own place and car, but evidence was uncovered that revealed what he was really saving for. It was at the end of 2021 when the attacker ordered rifle slings, a red dot sight, shin guards, and a body armor carrier. Still only 17 years old at the time, he had asked at least two people to purchase guns for him, which both individuals refused to do. Those were members of his own family. The investigation into the mass shooting revealed that family members and friends were aware of the attacker's efforts to purchase guns before he was legally permitted to do so. The attacker had developed a fascination with school shootings, 
which he made no effort whatsoever to hide. He regularly made comments about school shootings alongside his threats of violence and rape, to a point that on Yubo, a popular French networking site that boasts more than 60 million users, he had earned the nickname School Shooter. Those he played video games with also taunted him with similar School Shooter nicknames, so much so that it had become an ongoing joke. Even those that he interacted with online in a local Uvalde social media chat group referred to him as the School Shooter. After he shared photos of himself wearing the armored plate carrier and posing with a BB gun that he tried to convince them was a real gun. None of the attackers' behaviors were ever reported to law enforcement, and if anyone had ever reported him to any social media platforms that he was active on, there is no indication that any actions were taken to suspend or restrict his access or to report him to authorities as a potential threat. Early 2022 is when the attackers' vague talk and references to school shootings began taking form in reality, after he had a major falling out with his mother. A very heated argument between them had taken place and was live-streamed on Instagram. It was viewed by several members of their family as well. The local sheriff's department was called, and even though a couple of deputies responded to the domestic disturbance call, no arrests were made. This is when the attacker moved out of his mom's house and to his grandparents' house, located just a few blocks away from Robb Elementary. The relationship between the attacker and his mother never mended. Around this time, people noticed that the attacker began having cuts and scars on his face that appeared to be self-inflicted, a thing other witnesses later reported to have seen in the past. He was regularly telling people that he interacted with that he was going to quote-unquote do something soon. The home that he moved into where his grandparents had lived was small, and he had no bedroom of his own, and he slept on the living room floor. Days before the shooting, the attacker confided in a cousin, who was also staying there, that he didn't want to live anymore. After this cousin had a long, heart-to-heart -heart talk with the attacker, it was her belief that she had gotten through to him and he was feeling better. His uncle also had similar talks with him. Despite that, the attacker's plans and preparations for the school shooting continued to take form. In February of 2022, the attacker began purchasing more firearm accessories, including 60 30-round magazines, a holographic weapon sight, and a Hellfire Gen 2 snap-on trigger system. Well, I get the idea of what the last item is. I looked it up just to make sure because I'm not that familiar with gun accessories. And a Hellfire trigger system is a device that allows for a semi-automatic firearm to fire at an increased rate. It clamps to the trigger guard behind the trigger and presses a quote-unquote finger against the back of the trigger and increases the force that returns the trigger to its forward position decreasing the amount of time required for the trigger to reset, resulting in a faster follow-up shot. It was notably used at the Waco, Texas standoff and at the 2017 Las Vegas shooting. On March 23, 2022, two months prior to the shooting, a witness saw a suspicious person dressed in all black carrying a backpack lurking around Robb Elementary but that person was never identified. 
Eight days prior to the shooting, on May 16, 2022, the attacker turned 18 years old. He was now of age to purchase firearms and ammunition. In Texas, you can purchase rifles at the age of 18 and you can purchase handguns at the age of 21. From an online retailer, the attacker purchased 1,740 rounds of 5.56 millimeter 75 grain boat tail hollow point ammunition for $1,761, which was delivered to his doorstep. This is the kind of bullet used to hunt big game at long range that will expand due to the hollow point, increasing in width upon impact, making it more lethal. The attacker also ordered a Daniel Defense DDM4V7, which is a weapon similar to an AR-15, at a cost of $2,054 to be shipped to a local Uvalde gun retailer. The day after his birthday, the attacker went to that same retailer in person and purchased another AR-15 style rifle, a Smith & Wesson M&P 15, for $1,081. He came back the next day and purchased 375 rounds of M193, which is also a 5.56 millimeter round with a full metal jacket. The full metal jacket allows for a smoother discharge at a higher velocity. The attacker returned to the gun store on May 20th, four days before the shooting, to pick up the rifle that he had on order. He brought the holographic sight that he had purchased online with him, and a staff member at the gun store installed it for him. The owner of the gun store described the attacker as an average customer with no red flags or anything suspicious about him, and he always was pretty quiet and always came alone. He did ask how an 18-year-old was able to afford such purchases. The attacker said that he had been saving up. Other customers in the store at the time who saw the attacker disputed the gun store owner's description of the shooter, reporting that he looked very nervous that he was odd-looking and gave off bad vibes and was reminiscent of a school shooter. One of the witnesses in the gun store said that the all-black clothing was troubling. The gun retailer conducted a background check and the attacker was cleared for the purchases. Multiple gun purchases such as this are required to be reported to the ATF, which it was, but in Texas, the law only requires handgun purchases to be reported to local law enforcement. The ATF, of course, is federal. In the attacker's case, the information about this multiple rifle purchase remained with the federal agency. The attacker was driven to the gun store by his uncle twice. He stated that he did not know that they were there to pick up a rifle the first time because the store is connected to a restaurant and the attacker said that he was hungry. When he got back to the car with a long box and no food, it was obvious that he had purchased a rifle. It is not known who took the attacker to the gun store on May 18th, but it was his uncle again who drove him on the 20th when he told him he needed to pick up ammunition, which was not true. The uncle did not see what was in the package that was picked up and said that he is not familiar enough with firearms and didn't know what might have been inside. 
that time the attacker was picking up the first gun that he had ordered, the more expensive AR-15 style rifle, the one that needed to be shipped to the gun shop. The attacker's grandmother and his cousin told him that he could not have guns in the home, so the uncle agreed to allow him to store the first rifle at his house. The uncle believes that the attacker snuck the rifle out of his house after staying with him for a couple of nights. He then apparently hid the second rifle outside his grandmother's house until he brought it in the night before the shooting, as the shooter text messaged this information to an acquaintance. As far as anyone knows, the attacker had no experience using firearms, and the day of the shooting is most likely the first time he had ever fired one. The attacker's online interactions in the months leading up to the shooting foreshadowed what was to come. In a March 2022 Instagram group chat, a student told him that people at school talk shit about you and call you school shooter. On April 2nd, the attacker asked in a direct message, are you still going to remember me in 50 days? The person he messaged replied, probably not. The attacker replied back, hmm, all right. We'll see in May. The attacker often connected those dates with doing something that would make him famous and put him all over the news. Several of those that he chatted with in those days and weeks leading up to the shooting connected the dates he was talking about meant that they were deadlines for some type of violence. In a May 14th conversation, he wrote 10 more days. There was immediate speculation that he would shoot up a school or commit mass murder on that date, the 24th, which is the date of the Robb Elementary attack. On May 17th, the day after he turned 18 and started ordering guns and ammunition, he was told by a friend that another acquaintance of theirs was telling everyone that he was going to shoot up a school. The attacker also began sharing photos of his rifles, including with people he didn't know. Those who were in his Snapchat group claimed that they believed the guns were fake, despite the fact that the attacker also posted pictures of his receipts. And the reason for this was because he had previously tried to pass off a BB gun as a real rifle the year before. In late April of 2022, a friend that the shooter was texting received pictures of the rifles, and afterwards that friend suggested that he would come down to visit him. I believe that this was the best friend that was an hour and a half away in San Antonio. He said that he was going to go to Uvalde for the summer and that they should link up. The attacker agreed, telling him that if it's before May 23rd that he was down. The friend said that probably by July or August if he got a car by then. The shooter replied, damn, that's too late. I'm about to get two ARs, wanna see? The friend said, yeah. The attacker sent some pictures and then texted that he just spent $1,652 on some ammo and $2,150 on some AR. The friend replied, shaking my head with a skull emoji and a red exclamation point emoji. Then he replied with a laughing with tears emoji followed up by giving me school shooter vibes. In the last days prior to the shooting, the attacker saved news stories and other information about the mass shooting in a Buffalo, New York supermarket that occurred on May 19, 2022. 
He spent time with his cousin's son, who was a student at Robb Elementary. He played a video game with him called Roblox, which is a children's video game, and while doing so, the attacker questioned him about details involving his schedule at school and how the lunch periods worked. The day before the shooting, the attacker began contacting several people with vague but ominous messages about doing something the next day. He was saying things like, I got a little secret. When the person that he was talking to inquired further, he said that it was impossible on that day because he was still waiting for something to be delivered by 7 p.m. that evening, which was his order of 1,740 hollow point rounds. The attacker had no prior criminal history and had never been arrested. He never adopted or supported any kind of extreme ideologies or political beliefs. It was a matter of private individuals on their own who were aware of the variety of warning signs and red flags that we've discussed. Nobody put the pieces together, and I do understand why. He was young. He was a guy who talked big for a while, and most people thought that he was just blowing hot air. No one ever considered that a guy thought to be living in poverty, wearing the same clothes to school days in a row, who didn't have a car or a driver's license, would have thousands and thousands of dollars hoarded in order to make these kinds of expensive purchases. It also could be that lots of people online didn't even take into consideration that he had turned 18 and was then legal to purchase rifles. Even though I believe that there was enough for someone to raise the alarm about this man, it seems that there wasn't one person who knew enough that would compel anyone to actually take action. The day of the attack was a day that marked the beginning of the end of the 2022 school year at Robb Elementary. Parents were invited to join teachers and their students to celebrate their children's accomplishments and awards and to start getting ready for the much-anticipated summer vacation. All the students had completed their end-of-year exams and school instruction was over. It was awards day that day and parents were going to come to the school to attend the ceremony. Many of the students had plans to leave school early and get together with their friends to go to the movies. Meanwhile, just a few blocks away, a former student of Robb Elementary was preparing to change the small town of Uvalde forever with a heinous plan of his own. In the attacker's private messages, he indicated that he had chosen that specific date in advance for what would be a very significant event. There has been some speculation about that day. The class of 2022, the graduating class with whom the attacker would have walked had he stayed on track and not dropped out, the graduating class was scheduled to return to Robb Elementary that day to walk the halls at lunchtime. If his former classmates were his intended targets, they were spared because the senior class had visited the day before. The attacker was at home with his grandparents that morning and began sending ominous messages online, including some to an Instagram model that he had never met before, who he was tagging in his posts that showed pictures of his guns the week before. He wrote, I'll text you in an hour, but you have to respond. 
I got a little secret that I want to tell you. The attacker had been getting into fights more frequently with his grandmother, and she began threatening to kick him out and remove her from her cell phone plan. On the morning of May 24th, Grandma contacted her provider's customer service and did just that. His cell phone was deactivated. However, I'm fairly certain that he would still be able to use most of his phone's features if he connected to Wi-Fi. After talking to his acquaintance in Germany for about an hour via video chat, he began sending her messages, providing her with live updates of his actions that morning. 28 seconds after the attacker messaged her that he had shot his grandmother and intended to shoot up an elementary school, the German friend replied with, cool. To me, it sounds like this girl did not believe him, but he did, in fact, shoot his grandmother in the face. From there, he stole her pickup truck, leaving his grandmother for dead. She was able to seek help from a neighbor and ultimately survived her injuries. The attacker was then on his way to carry out his plan. While driving towards Rob Elementary, the attacker lost control of the truck and crashed into a ditch. Surveillance video from a nearby funeral home captured the accident on video at 11.28 a.m. Two men who were at the funeral home witnessed the crash and began walking towards the location. The attacker got out of the truck and opened fire at the two men, who then turned around and fled back towards the funeral home. A call was immediately made to 911 to report that there was an active shooter at that location. The attacker then began advancing towards the school on foot. A 5-foot or 1.5-meter tall fence surrounded the campus. He tossed his backpack over the fence and climbed over, which was also captured on funeral home video. Rob Elementary School coach Yvette Silva was outside at this time with a group of third graders when she witnessed the backpack being tossed over the fence, followed by a man dressed in all black coming over the fence after it. She saw this man raise his rifle and he began shooting. Coach Silva ran from the field towards her classroom. She used her radio to say, Coach Silva to office. Somebody just jumped over the fence and he's shooting. She ran towards the group of third graders on the playground to get them inside and locked down. She expected someone in the office to make the announcement to lock down, but she did not hear one right away. The attacker then advanced towards the teacher's parking lot while still firing his rifle. Meanwhile, the Uvalde Police Department dispatched radioed law enforcement with the initial 911 call from the funeral home reporting the active shooter. Numerous officers began responding towards the location. SWAT Team Commander Staff Sergeant Eduardo Canales was just at the school attending his son's award ceremony. While at his office, other officers began running down the hall saying there was a car accident and shots fired. He got up and followed the other officers, including Acting Chief of the Uvalde Police, Lieutenant Marino Pargas. Uvalde Police Chief Daniel Rodriguez was out of town on that day. The police department is four minutes away from the school. When Staff Sergeant Canales arrived, he saw cars stopped and a man shooting. He grabbed his rifle, put a magazine into it, and grabbed an extra one. 
He saw people at the funeral home directing him towards the school, and someone nearby told him that the shooter was in or near the building. Canales entered campus through an open gate where he met Uvalde police officer Lieutenant Javier Martinez, who also heard the report of the car crash and shots fired. From this point, we will refer to the department as the UPD. At the same time, UPD Officer Sergeant Daniel Coronado also arrived on the scene. He was in his uniform, he had his vest on, but had no rifle plates inserted in it. He stopped a little ways up the street where he saw two other UPD officers. He heard gunfire and asked them where it was coming from. The two officers didn't know and none of them were able to see the attacker. One of those officers later testified that based on the sounds of the gunfire, he thought the shooter was firing in their direction. He saw children dressed in bright clothing in the playground running away. Standing at a distance of more than 100 yards or about 100 meters as well, he saw a person dressed in all black running away also. Thinking that that was the shooter, that officer asked Sergeant Coronado for permission to shoot. Sergeant Coronado would later testify at the investigative committee hearings regarding this shooting that he heard the request for permission, but he hesitated. He knew that there were children present and considered the risk of shooting a child. His thought immediately was that they would be responsible for every single round that they would ever fire in their law enforcement careers. As it turned out, Coronado would have no chance to respond as they heard it go over their radios that the shooter was running towards the school. The person that officer saw running with the children was not the shooter, but instead another coach, Abraham Gonzalez. Coach Gonzalez had been on his way to the parking lot to leave after his lunch duty when he heard the other coach radio about the shooter. He instructed the children to run and lock down as the shooter was advancing. Sergeant Coronado saw people at the funeral home who were telling him the shooter was running towards the school. He went back to his patrol vehicle and drove in that direction to try and engage the shooter. He parked his car and saw Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo arrive at the scene. From this point, we'll be referred to this as a CISD. CISD Chief Pete Arredondo is an important figure in the story. So keep his name in mind as we make our way through this timeline. Just minutes earlier, Chief Arredondo was at his office at Uvalde High School when he heard the shots fired call go over his radio. He rushed out of his office. He heard Rob Elementary School mentioned. He got to his car and drove towards the school. When he arrived, he had his radios with him. I believe there was at least two because the report said radios. But as he got out of his car, he fumbled with them. They were apparently annoying him. So he dropped them by the fence outside the school because he knew that Sergeant Coronado, the sergeant on patrol, was at the scene, that he was fully uniformed, and that he had a radio. Arredondo dropping his radios at the fence has become one of the biggest issues I have with his whole entire mass shooting incident. And as I go on to talk about it, you will see why. As the shooter approached the school and as law enforcement was arriving, the staff at Robb Elementary began lockdown protocols. 
but they were going mostly on word-of-mouth reports of an active shooter on the campus. Principal Mandy Gutierrez had just finished up at the award ceremony and was in her office when she heard Coach Silva's report of the shooter coming over the fence. She attempted to initiate a lockdown on the Raptor application, but she had difficulty making the alert because of a bad Wi-Fi signal. Founded in 2002, Raptor has partnered with more than 52,000 schools globally, including more than 5,000 schools in the United States, to provide integrated visitor, volunteer, emergency management, safeguarding, and early intervention software and services that cover the full spectrum of school and student safety. But it apparently relies heavily on Wi-Fi. Principal Gutierrez did not communicate the lockdown alert over the school's intercom system. Instead, she called and spoke to Chief Arredondo, who told her to, quote, shut it down, Mandy, shut it down. She told the head custodian, Jaime Perez, to ensure that all the doors were locked. She first locked down in her own office, but later moved to the cafeteria. Custodian Perez was in the cafeteria when he heard Coach Silva's initial call over the radio about the shooter coming over the fence. He immediately began to implement the lockdown and he began locking doors from the outside. He heard shots being fired outside and returned to the cafeteria where he remained for the duration of the shooting. In the West Building, the fourth grade teachers in and around that building also began to initiate lockdown upon hearing about the advancing active shooter. Fourth grade teacher Sasha Martinez had left her classroom to head to recess with her students and it was then she heard the coach yelling and pointing for them, telling them to run. Sasha Martinez then heard gunshots and her students began running. Some of them ran towards the cafeteria. Others joined her towards the direction of their classroom. She then decided to take them into another open classroom in a different building instead. Teacher Lynn Deming was getting her class ready to go to recess. She was standing at the door of the West Building waiting for a child to get a water bottle when she heard other students telling her that a coach was yelling at them. She heard gunshots and told her children to get back into the classroom. Fourth grade teacher Elsa Avila had lined up her students to go to recess when some of the children began reporting that students from Lynn Deming's class were returning to their room screaming and crying. Elsa Avila opened the door, did not see anybody, but heard a female voice yelling, get into your classrooms. She returned to her classroom, slammed the door shut because her lock didn't work properly and needed to be slammed hard in order for her lock to engage. She turned off the lights and everyone positioned themselves away from the windows and doors. Because of active shooter drills, the children knew exactly what to do. Fourth grade teacher Nicole Ogburn heard a sound like metal on brick outside the building. She looked out her window and saw a man in dark clothing holding a rifle and a bag walking up the sidewalk. She told her students to get down. She heard gunshots coming from outside the window. She hid underneath a curtain inside the classroom. Fourth grade teacher Danica Rodriguez received the Raptor alert for a lockdown at 11.32 a.m. Her students also knew what to do and where to hide. She stepped outside and checked her classroom door to make sure it was locked and when she did so, she looked across the hall and locked eyes with another fourth grade teacher, Irma Garcia, who was also locking her door. 
Ms. Garcia would be one of the two teachers shot to death that day. After walking alongside of the building, teacher Nicole Ogburn observed the shooter entering the door on the west side of their building. The exterior doors on the east and south sides of the building were also unlocked, such that even if the west door had been locked, the attacker still would have had the ability to enter the building, though his progress would have been slowed. After getting in the west door, the shooter walked through the building towards the vestibule for rooms 111 and 112, which are adjoining classrooms. He turned and faced those classroom doors. At 11.33 a.m., surveillance video in the hallway showed the attacker firing his gun towards rooms 111 and 112. He walked forward towards the doors and could be seen stepping back into the hallway before proceeding again into one of the classrooms, though it is not clear which of the doors the shooter entered. However, based on the evidence, it has been determined that he most likely found the door to room 111 unlocked or unsecured and entered through that door, and we'll go over later on why that is. There is no evidence that the shooter made a forced entry through either door. However, as I stated a moment ago, the door to room 112 is the classroom of Irma Garcia, the teacher Janika Rodriguez locked eyes with from across the hall, who observed her locking her door. There is substantial evidence to show that the door on room 111 did not secure properly. The teacher in this room, Arnulfo Reyes, was aware of this and on several occasions reported the condition of the door to the school. There is evidence that teachers and students throughout the fourth grade knew the condition of this door as they regularly would enter through that door to access the printer in that room. Arnulfo Reyes had no recollection of receiving a lockdown alert or any memory that he undertook the effort needed to get his classroom door to lock before the arrival of the shooter. Mr. Reyes had been shot in the arm, back, and lung. He lost 11 of his students that day. He was the only one that came out of rooms 111 and 112 alive. After entering the classroom, the shooter spent two and a half minutes rapidly firing more than 100 rounds between the two rooms, ultimately killing everyone in there with the exception of Arnulfo Reyes. The Hellfire trigger system was later discovered in the room, but it has never been able to be determined whether or not the shooter utilized it. Terrified teachers and students throughout the rest of the building heard this extended burst of gunfire, as did law enforcement officers who were arriving on the campus and closing in on the building. Responders heard the tail end of this gunfire as they entered the building through the south and west doors. During those two and a half minutes of rapid gunfire, one of those bullets passed through the wall and struck teacher Elsa Avila in room 109, who did survive her injuries. After the shooter fired more than 100 rounds inside Rob Elementary's West Building, two separate groups of officers converged at the same time from two different directions. From the time of their initial entry and over the course of the next five minutes, the shooter fired 16 additional rounds. On the south side of the building, CISD Chief Arredondo, 
CISD Officer Adrian Gonzalez, UPD Officer Page, and UPD Sergeant Coronado approached. Officers Page and Gonzalez were the first to enter, followed by Chief Arandado and then Sergeant Coronado. Page and Gonzalez both heard rounds as they were approaching, as did Sergeant Coronado, who yelled, Shots fired. Meanwhile, on the north side of the building, UPD Lieutenant Martinez and Staff Sergeant Canales entered the building, followed by UPD Officer Louise Laundry. Lieutenant Martinez later told a Department of Public Safety investigator that he heard gunfire from inside the building, then he entered. However, he later testified to the investigative committee that he suspected the attacker was inside shooting, but as he entered the building, it was definitely quiet with no screaming or crying. He said that on arrival inside the building, he heard a few muffled shots. The evidence has established that as they arrived on the west side of the building, the initial responders knew that there had been gunfire inside. They heard it as they were approaching. When they entered, they could see a cloud of debris in the hallway from the drywall, along with bullet holes in the walls and spent rifle casings on the floor. Yet the testimony received by the investigative committee indicated that none of these initial responders recalled hearing screams or having a contemporaneous understanding as they arrived in the building that teachers and students had been shot inside the classrooms. In other words, they did not simultaneously see bullet holes, cloud debris, and spent shell casings, along with arriving at the conclusion that anyone had been shot because of the apparent lack of screaming and crying. After entering the West Building, the two separate groups of officers converged on rooms 111 and 112. Officer Page saw smoke and fog and observed that both classrooms were dark. Officer Gonzalez remembered smelling gunpowder and stated that it looked smoky and cloudy as if someone had used a fire extinguisher. Chief Arandondo made similar observations of smoke and saw spent shell casings on the ground. As Sergeant Coronado followed this group and Chief Arandondo with the other group, he heard no more active gunfire as recorded on his body camera. It was quiet and he could see bullet holes through the sheetrock. On Sergeant Coronado's body camera footage, another officer can be heard saying, It's an AR. Upon entering the building, the officers tried, but were unable to communicate on their radios. Officer Page stopped near rooms 111 and 112, and the school surveillance suggested that the officers coming from the south door were the first to reach the vicinity of those classrooms. At the same time, Lieutenant Martinez, followed by Staff Sergeant Canales, entered the hallway and approached rooms 111 and 112, with Martinez approaching along the east wall and Canales following along the west wall, as recorded on Canales' body camera and school cameras. Immediately behind them, four additional officers entered the building and remained in the north hallway. At 11.37 a.m., the officers converged from both sides of the hallway of the two classrooms. Lieutenant Martinez peered into the vestibule for the rooms and was met with gunfire. He was grazed in the head by either fragments of building material or bullets. He immediately retreated back into the hallway. On the other side of the hall, fragments also struck Staff Sergeant Canales, also in the head, and he also retreated and exited the building. No shots were fired toward the attacker at that time by law enforcement. And that was the first four minutes of this incident.
Let's now talk about what happened during the next 73 minutes. According to the investigative report, the remainder of law enforcement actions at the school that day until the ultimate breach of the classroom and the neutralization of the shooter was a tale of two separate responses on the north and south sides of the hallway outside rooms 111 and 112. After the shooter opened fire on responders, CISD Chief Arandondo noticed a light on in room 110, the room to the immediate south of room 111, which was used by teacher Sasha Martinez. She had taken her children out for recess already and ended up with some of her students going to the cafeteria while she took the rest of them to a different classroom. Arredondo wondered if there was a threat in that room. The door was either open or unlocked. He entered the room and observed bullet holes in the walls, but the room itself was empty. He assumed that there were no children there because it was awards day. He testified at the committee hearings that he had hoped that because that room was empty, that the children might also be gone from the rooms the shooter was occupying. Even though the event had begun as an active shooter situation, Chief Arredondo testified that he immediately began to think of the attacker as being cornered and the situation as being one of a barricaded subject, where his priority was to protect people in the other classrooms from being attacked by the shooter. In hindsight, we all now know that this was a dreadfully tragic mistake. This, treating the incident as a barricaded subject versus an active shooter, it's pivotal and changes everything about the way this incident was to be handled. At the hearing, Arredondo stated, we have this guy cornered. We have a group of officers on the north side and a group of officers on the south side. And we have children now that we know in these other rooms. My thought was, we're a barrier to get these kids out. Not the hallway because the bullets are flying through the walls, but get them out through the windows because I know outside it's brick. To me, once he's in a room, you know, to me, he's barricaded in a room. Our thought was, if he comes out, you know, you eliminate the threat, correct? And just the thought of the other children being in the other classrooms, my thought was, we can't let him come back out. If he comes back out, we take him out or we eliminate the threat. Let's get these children out. It goes back to categorizing. I couldn't tell you when, if there was any different kind of categorizing. I just knew he was cornered and my thought was, we're a wall for these kids. That's the way I looked at it. We're a wall for these kids. We're not going to let him get these kids in these classrooms where we saw the children. Chief Arredondo's testimony about his immediate perception of the circumstances is consistent with that of the other responders to the extent that they uniformly testified that they were unaware of what was taking place behind the doors of rooms 111 and 112. They obviously were in a school building during school hours and the attacker had fired a large number of rounds from inside those rooms. But the responders testified that they heard no screams or cries from within those rooms and they did not know whether anyone was trapped inside needing rescue or medical attention. Not seeing any injured students during their initial approach in the hallway, 
Sergeant Coronado testified that it was his thought that this was a bailout situation. In police talk, that means a suspect has left the scene of a crime on foot. Chief Arredondo and the other officers contended that they were justified in treating the attacker as a barricaded suspect rather than an active shooter because of a lack of visual confirmation of injuries or other information. Chief Arredondo explained his reasoning for not continuing an active shooter type response by stating to the committee, quote, when there's a threat, you have to visibly be able to see that threat. You have to have a target before you engage your firearm. That was just something that's gone through my head a million times. Getting fired at through the wall, coming from a blind wall, I had no idea what was on the other side of that wall. But you eliminate the threat when you can see it. I never saw a threat. I never got to physically see the threat or the shooter. This barricaded subject approach never changed over the course of this incident, despite evidence that Chief Arredondo's perspective evolved to an understanding that fatalities and injuries within the classroom were a very strong probability. He effectively conceded his error when asked what he would have done differently had he known injured victims were inside the classroom. Arredondo responded, I guess if I knew there was somebody in there, I would have. We probably would have rallied a little more to say, okay, there's someone in there. Brilliant response, right? Chief Arredondo went to room 109. He found it locked and dark. He saw a child's head and realized that there were students in that room. Officer Gonzalez asked Arredondo if he wanted to activate the SWAT team which he confirmed, so Gonzalez stepped out and made the call. However, as mentioned earlier, the head of the Uvalde SWAT team was already inside the building, which was Staff Sergeant Eduardo Canales. Chief Arredondo then used his cell phone to call the Uvalde Police Department. The Department of Safety supplied the following transcription of the call. Hey, hey, it's Arredondo, it's Arredondo, can you hear me? No, I have to tell you where we're at. It's an emergency right now. I'm inside the building. A dispatcher can be heard talking in the background, asking what room number. Is a teacher with him? Is a teacher with him? Is a teacher with him? Is she inside the same room with him? Can you hear me, ma'am? I'm right here. Is a teacher with him in his classroom? She's in another classroom. She's in room 102. Another person possibly shot across from her. Okay. We have him in the room. He's got an AR-15. He shot a lot. He's in the room. He hasn't come out yet. We're surrounded, but I don't have a radio. Remember, when Arredondo arrived, he got frustrated with his radios and dropped them at the fence, deciding to rely on the fact that Sergeant Daniel Coronado with the Uvalde Police Department, whom Arredondo saw when he arrived, he had a radio. The dispatcher then confirmed the SWAT location. Yes, they need to be outside this building, prepared because we don't have enough firepower right now. It's all pistols and he has an AR-15. If you could stay on the phone with me as long as you can, I am, but I'm going to drop it if it comes out that door, all right? The dispatcher then advised over the radio that Arredondo had the shooter in room 111 or 112 and he's going to be armed with a rifle and that he's requesting SWAT by the funeral home. 
So, so I need you to bring a radio for me and give me my radio for me. I need to get one rifle. Hold on. I'm trying to set him up. I'm trying to set him up. At 11.42 a.m., Uvalde County Constable Johnny Field arrived at the north end of the hallway. Constable Field saw Chief Arredondo on the other end of the hall and held up his cell phone. Arredondo called and began communicating with him as his primary contact on the north end. Okay, so dreamers, you see what's going on here. The constable has come to the north end of the hallway. Arredondo is with a group of officers on the south end of the hallway. Arredondo is supposed to be in charge here, and he has no radios to communicate with the officers who are staged at the other side of the hall on the opposite end across from him. They have the, the room that the shooter is in in the middle. So this is going to be a big problem for Arredondo. So over the phone, they discussed the need to evacuate the children from the building, and Arredondo decided to accomplish that by breaking windows. Officers Gonzalez and Page proceeded to start breaking classroom windows and helping to evacuate students from the classrooms. Arredondo found another unlocked classroom on the east side of the hallway with a teacher and students locked down inside, and he told them to stay down. Meanwhile, Sergeant Coronado had exited the building through the south door and made his own report by radio. He requested shields and flashbangs from the police department, and he asked for helicopter support and ballistic shields from the Department of Public Safety. Agreeing with Chief Arredondo's assessment, Coronado reported that the shooter was contained inside the building and barricaded in one of their offices. The dispatch asked him if the classroom door was locked and he responded that he wasn't sure, but they had a Halligan tool to break it. I'll explain later on what the Halligan tool is. Radio traffic indicated that the shooter was inside room 112, which was Eva Morales' classroom, and also asked whether her students were inside. In response, Sergeant Coronado requested a mirror to look around corners. A voice on the radio then said that class should be in session. After the initial responders took fire from the attacker, remember it was Lieutenant Martinez and SWAT head Staff Sergeant Canales who were hit by flying debris, Sergeant Coronado remained on the outside of the building for a total of 30 minutes regularly advising other officers to be careful about potential crossfire or a fatal funnel in the hallway, as well as assisting the evacuation of students and teachers through windows on the west side of the building. When some newly arrived responders appeared to suggest that the officers should clear out the south side of the hallway because the United States Border Patrol Tactical Unit, or BORTAC, responders were operating on the opposite end Sergeant Coronado responded that the chief is in there, the chief is in charge, suggesting that Arredondo was in control and in communication with the other side of the building, which we know he was not, except by phone, with one person. While Sergeant Coronado was outside, his body camera recorded several people commenting on the need to find a master key to the classrooms. Once Sergeant Coronado returned inside the south side of the hallway, he found Arredondo on his phone asking for a key, which was the primary focus of his attention for the next 40 minutes. Chief Arredondo personally tried all of one large set of keys that were brought to him, 
when Sergeant Coronado cautioned him to stay clear of the hallway and the fatal funnel, Arredondo responded, just tell them to fucking wait. Much of this time was spent by Chief Arredondo on the phone with Constable Field. He issued a series of additional requests for equipment and support, including a sniper, a master key, and breaching tools, repeatedly referencing the need for a key and breaching tools before they could attempt to enter the classrooms where the shooter was at. While waiting, he also periodically attempted to communicate with the attacker in both English and Spanish, including immediately after four shots were fired inside the classroom at 12.21 p.m. Despite all the discussion of breaching tools, Chief Arredondo testified that no one made him aware of when one arrived at the building. And um, maybe that's because he didn't have his radio on him. I'm just saying. Because breaching tools, a ballistic shield, and the master key did get there. It's just nobody had any way of letting him know. Arredondo prioritized making certain all other classrooms in the building were cleared of teachers and students, including the evacuation of room 109, where the attacker had shot teacher Sasha Avila through the walls. In the context of this evacuation, Arredondo commented, people are going to ask why we're taking so long. Uh, yeah, they did. And in apparent reference to the ongoing evacuations, that they were trying to, quote, take care of the rest of the lives first. In addition to seeking keys and a breaching tool, the other predominant theme going on on the south side of the building was to wait for the border patrol unit to breach the classrooms. Arredondo discussed with Constable Field various means of assisting the breach, such as by using a sniper or flashbangs to kill or distract the shooter. At 12.30 p.m., several officers entered through the south door and walked by both Arredondo and Coronado and stacked up south of rooms 111 and 112 on the west side of the hallway, anticipating a move to breach the classrooms. At 12.45 p.m., someone commented that a Texas Ranger had a set of keys that was being tested. Finally, at 12.50 p.m., a team of officers made entry into the classrooms and killed the shooter with officers in the south part of the hallway quickly falling in behind them and entering rooms 111 and 112. Arredondo testified that the only direction he gave to the north side of the building through Constable Field, because he was on the phone with him, because he didn't have his radio with him, because he left it by the fence off campus, was for them to evacuate the kids and to test the keys before trying to go into the room with the attacker. Arredondo did not make any decision for the Border Patrol unit to breach the classrooms. So, what I'm hearing is that the Border Patrol team, on their own initiative and their own command, breached the classroom and neutralized the threat within minutes of arriving at an active shooter scene that had been ongoing with law enforcement on site for more than an hour. Alrighty then. Going back to the point in time where the attacker shot the initial responders in the building, there were three Uvalde police officers who led the way down the hallway at that time. Lieutenant Martinez, followed by Staff Sergeant Canales, followed by Officer Landry. Martinez and Canales, if you remember, were hit by debris, possibly bullet fragments, 
after which all three men retreated. As Canales ran out, remember, he's the head of the Uvalde SWAT team. His body cam showed the presence of multiple officers in the hallway and a Department of Public Safety trooper stationed at the door as he exited. Canales said that we gotta get in there and he made a phone call requesting more help. UPD officer Landry also exited the building on the west side, then moved to the south side of the building where he began helping to clear classrooms and waited for specialized teams to arrive. After the initial shock of taking on gunfire, Lieutenant Martinez returned back down the hallway. Following active shooter training, he began to advance again towards rooms 111 and 112 in an apparent desire to maintain the momentum and to stop the killing, but this time, no other officers followed him. Several law enforcement officers later suggested that if others had followed him as backup, Lieutenant Martinez might have made it back to the classroom doors and engaged. Later, Lieutenant Martinez helped to evacuate children from the classrooms and was ultimately a part of the stack of officers on the south side of the hallway when the Border Patrol unit finally breached the classrooms, and all of this was captured on school surveillance. At first, responders from the Uvalde Police Department, including the acting chief on that day, Lieutenant Paragas, dominated the north end of the building. Lieutenant Paragas, who was one of the earliest responders, testified that he was never in communication with Chief Arredondo and that he was unaware of any communication with law enforcement officers on the south side of the building. And again, Arredondo's radios are out sitting by the fence, right? He told the investigative committee that he figured Arredondo had jurisdiction over the incident and that he must have been coordinating the law enforcement response. I mean, he probably would have been if his radios weren't sitting out by the fence outside, right? And the Uvalde police were there to merely assist. He did not coordinate with any of the other agencies that responded, such as the Uvalde Sheriff's Office or the Department of Public Safety. Lieutenant Pargas did receive a phone call from the actual Uvalde police chief who was out of town that day and instructed the acting chief to set up a command post right away. Lieutenant Pargas testified that he went to the back of the funeral home to start a command post, that the funeral home provided an office, and that he then went back outside to try and keep up with what was going on, and this did not result in the establishment of an effective command post. So here we have the acting police chief of the city also dropping the ball. Paragas was present when Uvalde CISD officer Ruben Ruiz entered through the door of the building as stated. Ruiz was yelling, she says she's shot, referring to his wife, fourth grade teacher Eva Morales, one of the two teachers in rooms 111 and 112 that was killed by the shooter. Officer Ruiz was escorted away from the building. Lieutenant Paragas also testified that he heard on the radio about 911 calls that were coming from inside the classroom, and he stated that it was his understanding that officers on the north side of the building understood that there were victims trapped inside the classroom with the shooter. According to Paragas, while nobody said it, the officers on the north side of the building were waiting for other personnel to arrive from the Department of Public Safety or the Border Patrol 
with better equipment and rifle-rated shields. As responders continued to arrive on the scene, officers stationed outside the building directed them to assist on the perimeter. Special Agent Luke Williams with the Department of Public Safety testified that upon his arrival, he disregarded a request to assist at the perimeter and instead, he proceeded into the east door on the north side of the building. He began to clear rooms along the north hallway where he found a student hiding in the boys' bathroom. The student had his legs up as to not be seen in the stall as he had been trained to do and he demanded that the special agent confirm that he was with law enforcement, which he did by showing his badge under the stall. This detail really tugged at my heart because when I was in elementary school, I wouldn't have no idea to have done those things. As Special Agent Williams approached the intersection of the hallways, from the east where a group of officers were positioned at the west side with weapons pointed to the south, he heard somebody ask, y'all don't know if kids are in there? Williams interjected, if there's kids in there, we need to go in there. An officer who was positioned in the hallway responded that whoever was in charge would figure that out. Little did they know that the guy who was supposed to be in charge didn't have his radios with him. Another officer told Special Agent Williams that where he was standing created a crossfire situation relative to the group of officers pointing their weapons towards rooms 111 and 112, so he departed and continued clearing other classrooms. Between 11.52 a.m. and 12.21 p.m., four different ballistic shields arrived in the building, but only the last shield, supplied by the United States Marshals, was rifle rated. That rifle rated shield was the only one that would have provided meaningful protection against the AR-15. There is no evidence that anyone told Chief Arredondo or anyone else on the south side of the building about the arrival of the rifle rated shield and maybe it had something to do with the fact that the commanding officer left his radios on the ground outside the school and had no way of communicating with anyone else except by cell phone. Just before 12.30 p.m., there was a burst of activity on the north side of the building. A group of officers moved past the previously positioned ones established at the north hallway intersection, and they began to stack close to the north side of rooms 111 and 112. From the south, Sergeant Coronado announced the arrival of the Border Patrol officers. Another group of officers began to stage a medical triage in the area, in the east side of the north hallway. At this time, the Border Patrol unit assumed tactical control of the incident. BORTAC Acting Commander Paul Guerrero came to the north side of the building upon his arrival. In a later statement, he said that he was advised that the subject possibly shot multiple children and was still in the classroom. He requested surveillance through the back windows of room 111 and 112 in order to possibly deploy gas as they made entry. He then retrieved a Halligan tool from his car, a forcible entry tool used often by firefighters designed in 1948 by New York City Fire Department First Deputy Chief Hugh Halligan. The school surveillance camera shows the arrival of the Halligan tool at 12.35 p.m. 
The arrival of this tool was never communicated to Chief Arredondo, again, because he ditched his radio. Border Patrol Commander Guerrero attempted to pry open a door in the hallway to see if the Halligan tool would work. He determined that it would take too long and dangerously exposed an officer to gunfire coming from inside the classroom. He observed that the classroom doorway had multiple bullet holes in it, and he did not want to expose or jeopardize the safety and lives of any officers trying to pry open the door. Commander Guerrero then obtained a master key from an officer at the scene. As he made his way to the classroom, an officer advised him to try it on another door first. He attempted to open another door along the hallway, but it didn't work. He then received a second master key, which he was able to successfully use to open another door. Working with his BORTAC team, Commander Guerrero had another agent use the rifle-rated ballistic shield to give him cover as he opened the classroom door. Commander Guerrero placed the key into the door to room 111. The shooter was standing in front of a closet in the corner of the room as he fired his rifle at the stack of officers coming through the door. The officers returned fire on the shooter, killing him. None of the Border Patrol agents involved in opening the door were wearing activated body cameras. It also was mentioned in the report that there was a series of phone calls with a student inside room 112 initiated by the student having called 911 at 12.03 p.m. Radio traffic communicated to those officers could and did hear the fact that a student called from within the classroom. Several witnesses were aware of this, but Chief Arredondo, again, having ditched his radio, would not have the ability to hear or take part in the radio communication. No officer who knew about the 911 phone calls coming from inside rooms 111 and 112 acted on it in order to advocate shifting to an active shooter-style response or otherwise acting more urgently to breach those classrooms. Now we're going to talk about what didn't happen on that day. A major error in the law enforcement response at Robb Elementary was the failure of any officers to assume and exercise effective incident command. Uvalde police officers responding to a wrecked vehicle and shots fired appeared to have been the first to have arrived on the scene, which would make one of them, whomever has the highest rank, to be the initial incident commander. Uvalde CISD Police Chief Pete Arredondo quickly arrived as the incident moved to school property and the law enforcement response then evolved. This made Arredondo the natural person to assume command over an incident as it developed. But Chief Arredondo did not consider himself to have assumed the incident command as he explained to the committee. While you are there, you don't title yourself. I know our policy states that you're the incident commander, meaning he's the incident commander. My approach and thought was as a responding officer, so I didn't title myself. But once I got there and we took that fire, back then I realized we needed some things. We've got to get in that door. We need an extraction tool. We need those keys. As far as I'm talking about the command part, the people that went in, 
There was a big group of them outside that door. I have no idea who they were and how they walked in or anything. I kind of, I wasn't given that direction. You can always hope and pray that there is an incident command post outside. I just didn't have access to that. I didn't know anything about that. Well, perhaps if he didn't leave his radio outside by the fence before going on campus. And you know what, dreamers? The more I hear from this Chief Arredondo character, the more I wonder if he dropped his radios on purpose to just eliminate himself as being the officer in command. Because later on, towards the end, we're going to find out that there is no question he was supposed to be the one. He is supposed to be the one in charge, in command, to set up the command post outside the building and to remain out there and be in charge of everything that happens on the inside. Other people could have assumed command, including the next people in the Uvalde CIDS's line of command for an active shooter response or others on the scene with more experience or training. Advanced law enforcement rapid response training or alert training trains and teaches that any law enforcement officer can assume command, that somebody must assume command, and that an incident commander can transfer responsibility as an incident develops. That did not happen at Robb Elementary on that day. And the lack of effective incident command is a major factor that caused other vital measures to be left undone. The misinformation reported to officers on the outside likely prevented some of them from taking a more assertive role. Many officers were told to stay outside of the building because Chief Arredondo was inside a room with the attacker actively negotiating, which is patently false. Responders did not remain focused on the task of stopping the killing as instructed by active shooter training. They never attempted to breach the classroom before the Border Patrol unit accomplished entry. Chief Arredondo explained, I knew those doors. Those doors opened outward. They're thick, heavy doors with a metal frame. Most people are used to most officers are used to going to a residence and you kick in doors. That's just such a common thing in our business. You don't have that option here. I knew a ramrod, which I call a buddy, which is a heavy pipe with two handles, wasn't going to work here. And that's why I called for that extraction tool and keys. Nobody ever checked the doors of rooms 111 and 112 to confirm that they were actually locked or secured. And room 11 was most likely not even locked. Remember, teacher Arnulfo Reyes had reported numerous times that the door to room 111 did not secure properly and that several witnesses stated that they regularly entered into that unsecured room in order to use the printer. Chief Arredondo's search for a key consumed his attention and wasted precious time delaying the breach of the classrooms. Nobody called Principal Gutierrez to ask about the location of a master key. She had a key and the head custodian had a key. Yet despite all the effort to find one, nobody called her. 
Nobody ever created a diversion on the east side of the building where rooms 111 and 112 had windows, even though officers on both sides of the building talked about it. Although it should not have proved necessary, had responders remained focused on stopping the killing as soon as possible, as the incident dragged on, nobody tasked any law enforcement responder with establishing reliable communications between the north and south sides of the building, as well as with resources outside the building. Radio communication was ineffective, so something else was needed for decision makers to receive critical information, such as the fact that victims had called from inside the rooms with the attacker. To the extent that there was confusion among officers about whether the scenario was an active shooter or a barricaded subject, information that there were wounded victims in the rooms would have clarified the existence of an active shooter scenario. The response to the shooting that morning in Uvalde was incredible. Individuals from 23 different agencies responded to the scene. 149 from the United States Border Patrol, 91 from the Texas Department of Public Safety, 25 from the Uvalde Police Department, 16 from the San Antonio SWAT Team, 16 from the Uvalde Sheriff's Office, 14 from the Department of Homeland Security, 13 from the United States Marshals, 8 from the Drug Enforcement Agency, 7 from the Frio County Sheriffs, 5 from the Kinney County Sheriffs, 5 from the Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District, 4 from the Dilly Police Department, 4 from the Zavala County Sheriffs, 3 from the Medina County Sheriffs, 3 from the Sabino Police Department, 2 from each of the following, City of Uvalde Fire Marshals, Pearsall Police, Texas Parks and Wildlife, Uvalde County Constables, Valverde County Sheriffs, and one each from Frio County Constables, Southwest Texas Junior College Officers, and Zavala County Constables, a total of 376 responders. When it came to Robb Elementary School and the Uvalde CISD, the committee came to the following conclusions. The school had poor Wi-Fi connectivity, which delayed the lockdown alert. Not all teachers received it immediately because of Wi-Fi. Whether the teachers had the Raptor app on their phones or not, and whether or not the teachers were carrying their phones. No one used the school intercom to communicate the lockdown. Not all teachers received timely notice of the lockdown, and this included the teacher in room 111. The bailout alert. The belief that the shooter fled the scene on foot. It diluted the significance of the alerts and diminished the readiness to act. The initial response to the lockdown by many school employees, teachers, and law enforcement was that they were dealing with a much less dangerous bailout situation. The school had ongoing problems with maintaining their door locks, particularly room 111. It was widely known to not be working, including by the assistant principal, who was responsible for entering maintenance orders, the teacher in room 111, many other fourth grade teachers and many fourth grade students all knew the problem with the lock, yet nobody ever placed a work order for it to be repaired. Not the principal, not her assistant, not the teacher, or anyone else. 
Robb Elementary had a culture of non-compliance with safety policies that required doors to be kept locked, which turned out to be fatal on that day. Teachers at the school often used rocks to prop open exterior doors. The west door to the building was supposed to be continuously locked. When the attacker approached, it was unlocked and he was able to enter the building. If the door had been locked per school policy, the attacker would have been slowed for some period of time as he either circumvented the lock or moved to another point of entry. Teachers at the school commonly left interior doors unlocked for convenience. They also used magnets and other methods to circumvent door locks. The doors to rooms 111 and 112 were required to be locked at all times and in a lockdown, the teachers were supposed to check that they were locked. The slain teacher in room 112 was seen locking her door after the lockdown alert. The door to room 11 was not locked. The shooter did not have to take any special actions to overcome a locked door before entering the classrooms. If the door to room 111 had been locked, the attacker would have likely been slowed for some time as he either circumvented the lock or took some alternative course of action. By the way, the teacher who propped the door open with a rock kicked it away as soon as the word of a shooter went over the radio. However, the push bar door did not automatically lock as the teacher thought it would when the rock was kicked away. When it comes to the shooter, he had an unstable home life, no father figure, a mother struggling with substance abuse. The family moved often and lived in poverty. The shooter developed sociopathic and violent tendencies, but received no mental health assistance. Various members of his family were aware during the time leading up to his 18th birthday that he was estranged from his mother that he had asked for help buying guns through straw purchases, meaning getting somebody of age to purchase guns on his behalf, which would have been illegal. Family members uniformly refused to help him buy guns. The week between his 18th birthday and the day of the shooting, the attacker expressed suicidal ideation to a cousin, but she did not believe he was at imminent risk of suicide. His grandparents and other family members became aware that he had purchased guns. His grandparents demanded that he remove the guns from their home. The shooter struggled academically throughout his time in school. The school made no meaningful intervention with the shooter before he was withdrawn for poor academic performance and excessive absences. Due to his excessive absences, the shooter had few disciplinary issues at school and there was no information actually known to the school that would have identified this attacker as a threat to any school campus. There was no information known to local law enforcement that would have identified this attacker as a threat either. Some of the shooter's social media contacts received messages from him related to guns, suggesting that he was going to do something that they would hear about in the news, even referring to attacking a school. Some social media users may have reported the attacker's threatening behavior to the relevant social media platforms. Those platforms appeared to have not done anything in response to those reports. Services used by the Uvalde CISD to monitor social media threats did not provide any alert of threatening behavior by the shooter. 
There was no legal impediment to the attacker buying two AR-15 style rifles, 60 magazines, and more than 2,000 rounds of ammunition when he turned 18. The ATF was not required to notify the local sheriff of these multiple purchases. When it came to law enforcement, there was no law enforcement officer on the Robb Elementary School campus when the attacker came over the fence. Citizens at the scene quickly alerted law enforcement about a car accident, a man with a gun and shots fired near the school campus. Most initial responders understood the incident began off campus and that would have been under the jurisdiction of the Uvalde Police Department. Uvalde Police Department officers were among the first, if not the first, responders on the scene as a man firing a gun advanced towards Robb Elementary. As the situation developed and more information was received, it became apparent that the threat moved to the school campus and was then within the jurisdiction of the Uvalde CISD Police Department, the department with the guy in charge who ditched his radio. Robb Elementary School coach Yvette Silva acted heroically and almost certainly saved lives by alerting the school to the advancing shooter. Most fourth grade classes successfully locked down as a result of her quick response. After entering through an unlocked door, the attacker had three minutes in the building before first responders arrived, including a full two and a half minutes he had to have fired over 100 rounds. Initial responders heard gunfire and encountered a hallway filled with a fog of drywall debris, bullet holes, and empty casings. They converged on rooms 111 and 112, which they identified as the location of the shooter. They acted appropriately by attempting to breach the classroom to stop the shooter. The shooter responded with a burst of rifle fire from inside the classrooms. Responders began to assess options to breach the classroom but lost critical momentum by treating this scenario as a barricaded subject instead of with the greater urgency attached to an active shooter scenario because the shooter was preventing critically injured victims from receiving medical attention it is considered to be an active shooter situation and in an active shooter situation responding officers are to prioritize the safety of the innocent victims over the safety of law enforcement officers. In a barricaded subject situation, the priority is the lives of the law enforcement officers. The officers at Robb Elementary who initially responded prioritized their own lives in an active shooter situation. In the beginning, first responders did not have reliable evidence about whether there were victims inside rooms 111 and 112 even though circumstances strongly suggested that possibility, including the fact that the shooter had fired many rounds inside classrooms where students were in attendance. Uvalde's CISD active shooter policy called for CISD police chief Arredondo to be the incident commander in any active shooter response on any campus in his district. Aridanda was one of the first responders to arrive at the West Building. In the initial response, Aridanda was actively engaged in the effort to stop the killing up to the point when the attacker was located in rooms 111 and 112 and he fired on responding officers. 
By this time, there were dozens of officers on the scene, but Arredondo did not assume his pre-assigned responsibility of the incident command, which would have entailed informing other officers that he was in command and also to leave the building to exercise that command, beginning with establishing a command post. Instead, he remained in the hallway where he lacked reliable communication with other members of law enforcement and he was never able to effectively implement staging or command and control of the situation. Over the course of the next hour, hundreds of law enforcement officers and agents arrived at the scene. It was chaotic without any obvious person in charge or directing the law enforcement response to the extent that any officers considered Arredondo to be the overall incident commander, they also should have recognized that was inconsistent with him remaining inside the building. There was an overall lackadaisical approach by law enforcement at the scene. For many, that was because they were given and relied upon inaccurate information. For others, they had enough information to know better. Despite obvious deficiencies in command and control, which should have been recognized by other law enforcement responders, none approached Arredondo or any of the officers around him or subordinate to him to affirmatively offer assistance with the incident command. Arredondo and the officers around him were focused solely on gaining access to the classrooms and protective equipment for the officers. Meanwhile, Dozens of law enforcement officers were assembling in the hallway on the north side of the building, stacking up for an assault on the classrooms, and mostly waiting for further instruction pending the arrival of protective gear and breaching equipment. While 911 received communications from victims inside rooms 111 and 112, Arredondo did not learn about it because of his failure to establish a reliable method of receiving critical information from outside the building. Eventually, he came to understand that there were probably casualties inside those rooms. Even if he had received information of surviving injured victims in the classrooms, it is really unclear if he would have done anything differently to act more urgently. U.S. Marshals provided a rifle-rated shield that arrived at approximately 12.20 p.m., 30 minutes before the classroom was finally breached. While officers acted on the assumption that the doors to rooms 111 and 112 were locked, as they were designed to be, nobody tested that assumption. Room 111's door was probably not effectively locked shut. Chief Arredondo did not exercise tactical incident command over the Border Patrol unit team, nor did they seek instruction from him. By the time the BORTAC team breached the classrooms, the tactical command inside the building had been de facto assumed by BORTAC. There is no evidence that breaching the classroom any sooner than the 73 minutes that passed between the initial first response until the breach would have saved lives or mitigated injuries. It is likely that most of the deceased victims perished immediately during the shooter's initial barrage of gunfire. However, given the information that we now know of victims who survived the breach, 
but died later on on the way to the hospital, it is plausible that some of them could have survived if they were not made to wait an additional 73 minutes to be rescued. With such an enormous response of 376 members of 23 different agencies, the answer to what went wrong in Uvalde is a failure in leadership. Reminiscent of what happened to schools when COVID-19 shutdown was initiated, the Uvalde School District abruptly suspended all remaining school activities and shut down for the year. The school year also began three weeks later this year, on September 6, 2022. In June, it was decided that Robb Elementary would close down permanently. It is slated to be demolished and a new campus will reopen in its place by October of 2024. Two days after the shooting, the widower of teacher Irma Garcia, Joe Garcia, suffered a massive heart attack while attending a memorial and passed away. Chief Arredondo was elected to the Uvalde City Council 17 days before the shooting. One week after the shooting on May 30th, the mayor of Uvalde announced that Arredondo would not be sworn in as scheduled out of respect for the families. Instead, he was quietly sworn in on the 31st without any ceremony. On June 3rd, the school board held a meeting and decided to not take any disciplinary action against Arredondo at the time. However, 19 days later, on June 22nd, Arredondo was placed on administrative leave. On July 2nd, Arredondo resigned from the Uvalde City Council. The investigative report on the Robb Elementary School shooting, which I just went over with you in great detail, was released on July 17th, 2022. Clearly, the report was quite scathing when it came to Arredondo. On August 24th, 2022, the Uvalde School Board unanimously voted to terminate Arredondo's contract, effectively firing him immediately. He wasn't there. Instead, his attorney issued a press release. I kind of just really quickly skimmed through it. I didn't really read it. But I'd bet anything that it's probably defensive and blamey. Shall we take a look-see? Yes, let's. It's kind of wordy, so I'll try to pull the most interesting things his attorney had to say. First, it said that Arredondo has the constitutional right to due process to clear his name, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he could have shown up at the school board meeting and spoken up for himself, but he didn't, and they decided to just fire him. Getting down into page 5 in the statement from his attorney, it stated that it has been publicly reported that Arredondo has been the victim of death threats made by individuals with means of carrying them out, and that the last thing that anyone wants is for these proceedings to be compounded by violence, especially gun violence. Despite the threats being common knowledge, the school district has not disclosed any effort on its part to ensure the safety of Chief Arredondo. Then it says, Tuesday, May 24th, 2022 will be a day of sorrow for Chief Arredondo and all the others impacted by this horrible event. All those impacted are in one or more stages of grief, from shock to denial to anger to bargaining to depression to acceptance and hope to processing the grief. The grieving process will take time and with time, 
we all hope to find understanding. Those fighting with anger lash out, trying to find a means to move on, and with anger comes the blame game. One could blame God. Why did God let this happen? But without question, the only person responsible for this tragedy is the shooter himself. But because the shooter was successful in hurting the innocent and obtaining death by cop, he is no longer alive. So those grieving do not have a target to direct their anger toward. While police were justified in taking his life, it doesn't help anyone with the grief they're experiencing. So naturally, those affected lash out and seek more retribution by identifying a new target to focus their grief on with the belief that it will help them to stop hurting. Um, excuse me, but this attorney has no idea what anyone who suffered the loss of their child or loved one knows what they feel or believe, and I even found that presumption to be quite offensive. Anyway, the statement continued, unfortunately it won't. Two wrongs don't make a right. Retribution will not bring anyone back. It is a hollow reward and will only spread more hurt and pain in an unjust and biased manner. Chief Arredondo respectfully asks those who feel as if they have lost everything and those like him who lost family members and friends in this tragedy to take a moment of pause to contemplate and consider the actions that they are taking and determine how whatever goal one seeks, achieving that goal is not going to change anything for those grieving except increase their numbers. Okay, getting the chief tossed out on his ass has nothing to do with feeling better about having their 9, 10, and 11-year-olds and two of their teachers shot to death. Nothing is going to ever make that feel better. Even if that piece of human garbage that did this lived to answer to his crimes, it still wouldn't make anything better or right ever again. This is only about Arredondo's failure to do his job. If I was the care provider of a newborn or an infant and I dropped that baby and caused it to suffer brain injury or death, I'd not only be fired, I'd be prosecuted. We are too many years removed from a time when police forces are undertrained in an active shooter situation. For fuck's sake, aside from the border patrol guys, the only other people who apparently understood the assignment were the children. I didn't even know the things the children had been trained to do because really, this is the first school shooting that I've covered that has taken place in this millennium which is part of the reason why I chose to do it. The mistakes that were made that day should have never happened because everybody trains for this. I never, not one time in my life, experienced a lockdown in school or anywhere for that matter. My daughter who attended public school from 2004 through 2017, she did at least four times that I can recall her telling me about. They weren't active shooter incidents. There was one that was an armed robbery suspect who ran into or across the campus. There was a student that set fire to the science lab and made threats at her high school. They were incidents like that. My daughter talked about these things so casually to me, 
because they're so prepared for an active shooter, it almost felt like she wasn't worried because she knew what to do. These children in Uvalde at Rob Elementary, they knew what to do, yet their chief, Arredondo, the predetermined commander of any active shooting incident in the Uvalde school district, left his fucking radio at the gate. The only way he was going to be able to communicate with every single responder across the campus. He didn't even have the sense to get the highest ranking Uvalde Police Department officer to take command, which he had every right and ability to do. But until he would do that, he would be the officer in command. And we all know how well that went. No, firing Arredondo won't bring anyone back to life. It won't alleviate the pain or the grief, but it will be a lesson for the next CISD chief to know his or her place and to take command. Arredondo's attorney statement went on to say that police work is 95% boredom and 5% terror. That anyone can look at a situation from the calm of their office or living room or from behind a microphone doing a podcast and criticize what was done. That doesn't change the fact that based on what Arredondo knew, that he did everything he knew how to save the children and school employees on that day, that he was actively engaged in finding a means to get to the school shooter while directing other officers to remove the children and employees who were in the line of fire. He was there when the shooter shot through the walls, that bullets went through the walls on the other side of the hall, that others were in imminent danger of serious bodily injury or death, that it was imperative to evacuate those other rooms in a safe way while he developed a means to get to the shooter. Then the statement says, Would the school district have preferred a gunfight with officers in the hallway to break out and say 20 or 30 children across the hall are killed? And what if some of them were killed by police officer fire? And to that I say, no. But it would have been nice if the person who was supposed to have taken command did so and had a radio with him. That's what this is about. The statement then says, Arredondo did the right thing. He believed that they could not breach the door without tools that weren't available to him. He never retreated. He stayed in the hallway, fully engaged, leading officers at the scene from the front rather than retreating to the rear to an open command center. That was his only choice, as he would have been considered a coward if once he is engaged, he backed out and left the other officers to risk their lives. It was all heard on audio and video. The other officers believed Arredondo oversaw finding a way to get the door open to get to the shooter rather than the entire incident. The statement goes on to contend that the incident command, or lack thereof, as it were, is an allegation that is false and is meant to distract and blame. Then it says that the National Incident Management System dictates the incident command structure across the United States. And the statement basically did the exact thing that it claimed was being done to Arredondo, blame shifting. Based on national protocol, the incident 
began when the attacker shot his grandmother, and that effectively made the Uvalde Sheriff's Office the agency in command of the incident since they were the first to be aware of it. Then, once the vehicle crashed and the Uvalde Police Department became aware of that, then the incident command protocol dictates that it was then under their command as soon as they became aware of that. But dreamers, I would argue that this attorney's statement in using this very logic has illustrated that an incident is fluid and evolving. Knowledge of the shooter began with the sheriff's office. Then it shifted to the police department. So once the attacker crossed over onto school property and entered the school's building, the incident shifted once again. It had been predetermined that the Consolidated Independent School District Police Chief is in command of all campus shootings in Uvalde. And to me, the remaining half of the statement beyond all of this is irrelevant. And honestly, the fact that Arredondo dropped his radios outside the school perimeter was a clear and present indicator that this man had absolutely no intentions of taking command of what was going on inside the school that he was sworn to protect. And furthermore, it was abundantly clear what his thinking was when he testified when he saw Sergeant Daniel Coronado was on the scene already with a radio. How do you command 376 agents and law enforcement officers from a hallway with no radio? You can't. And I'll never get over the fact that Arredondo dropped his radios. The investigative report indicated that he had more than one radio with him and he brought none with him onto the campus. It doesn't matter what he was doing to engage the shooter if the other 375 people there to back him up can't communicate with him. I'll never get over it and I'll never understand why he did that. To me, this is a man who deserved to be fired. First and foremost, people were going to die that day. Children were going to die that day, no matter what anyone did or didn't do. Chief Arredondo failed in mitigating the loss of life. And by the way, get this, dreamers, you're going to love this one. Arredondo himself co-wrote that very active shooter plan, making him the person in control of all the efforts of all law enforcement and first responders that arrive on the scene in the event of a school shooting emergency in the Uvalde School District. He co-wrote that plan himself. Oh, man, that guy makes me mad. Acting Chief of the Uvalde Police Department, Lieutenant Mariano Pargas, was suspended two days after the release of the investigative report on July 19, 2022, as a result of the report's findings, but it is not known if it is a paid administrative leave or not. The report revealed that the actions taken by the Uvalde Police Department on that day completely disregarded their very own active shooting training in that they failed to prioritize saving the lives of innocent victims over their own safety. And that is the most up-to-date news regarding Lieutenant Pargas's status. A week after the report was released, Rob Elementary School Principal Mandy Gutierrez was placed on administrative leave. The investigative report 
blamed her and her assistant for knowing the lock to room 111 where many of the killings took place wasn't working and that it was most likely where the killer entered through that unlocked door. The report also mentioned the principal's failure to make a lockdown announcement when the Raptor system failed due to a poor Wi-Fi connectivity. She has since been reinstated and moved to a different school, but everyone has been moved to a different school because Rob Elementary is no more. Last month on October 5th, 2022, the entire Uvalde School District Police Department was suspended. According to AP News, this move came during an investigation by the Texas Police Chiefs Association into the delayed response to the shooting. Additional serious concerns were uncovered, which led to the sweeping suspensions. The Texas Department of Safety will be providing the campus coverage in the meantime. Also placed on leave was the school district's director of student services, Ken Mueller, and the acting CISD chief, the one that replaced Arredondo. They're both on administrative leave as well. However, Mueller has since chosen to retire. On October 6, 2022, newly hired school officer Crimson Elizondo was also fired. Her firing came while parents were fiercely protesting outside the school for two weeks at the beginning of last month. Back in May, at the time of the shooting, Elizondo was one of the Department of Public Safety officers who arrived at Robb Elementary School within minutes of the attacker getting onto the campus and opening fire. She was seen briefly on body camera footage outside the school, then briefly inside the hallway. Later, she was heard on body camera talking to fellow officers when someone asked her if she had children at the school. She replied, if my son had been in there, I would not be on the outside. I promise you that. She was no longer with the DPS as she was hired by the school district over the summer as a part of an effort to beef up their force. According to CNN, Elizondo was not only fired because of the statement she made that if her child was in the school, she would not be standing around on the outside, a statement many found to be incredibly distressing and inconsistent with the expectations of any police officer, but there were several other reasons. She was one of the first officers to respond to the report that there was a shooter at the school. On other officers' body cameras, Elizondo can be seen getting out of her vehicle, but she did not put on her tactical body armor or get her long rifle as she was trained to do so in such an event. She did not approach the school, but instead stayed with officers from other agencies outside the fence until the call was made over the radio that shots were being fired from inside the building. She ran in with other officers to the east end of the building where rooms 111 and 112 were located. Elizondo walked into the building briefly, but mostly stood outside. As the Bortak team prepared for the final breach, she helped a colleague gather his equipment and supplies, and she was a good distance away from the school when the shooter was killed. According to an article on CNN.com, within moments of the shooter being neutralized, body camera recordings where so many officers had once been standing around had become a scene of carnage as officers got students out of the classrooms in order to assess their injuries. Soon, Elizondo was there urging students to go, 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 
if they could and told them to not look at their injuries or the blood all over the floor. She comforted one child as another officer checked his wounds, telling him over and over and over again that she was there with him, that he would be okay, and that his parents would be told soon. She traveled to the hospital in a school bus with students who were shot or injured. She continued to help taking care of them, but despite that, her efforts to assist on that day were too little too late. The last notable firing that I found to date was an officer with the Texas Department of Public Safety. On October 21, 2022, Sergeant Juan Maldonado became the first member of the state police force to be terminated as a result of the hesitation and the delayed response to the school shooting that day. At first, the Texas Department of Public Safety seemed to have been suggesting that their role at the scene was minimal but body camera footage and media reports have since revealed that their role was much larger than first suggested. State troopers were among the first wave of law enforcement to arrive, and they were second in numbers behind the Border Patrol officers. However, despite the large numbers of them on the scene, they did not immediately confront the gunmen, which goes against standard police procedures during a mass shooting. It's important to remember that as long as the gunman was preventing victims from receiving medical attention, then the event is considered an active shooter situation. From the time the attacker began shooting at the funeral home until the moment he was shot dead, every second of this event at Robb Elementary School was an active shooter situation. Until the United States Border Patrol agents arrived and took tactical command over the incident, the scene was confusing, chaotic, and lacked leadership. The backlash against the law enforcement officers and agents has been harsh and continues to be. It's been the same against lawmakers and politicians. It happens after every mass shooting. This isn't a place that I'm really willing to go into that or in any episode. I'm one to pick on the egregious mistakes made in the critical moments that it mattered, like the school police chief and his radios, or missed opportunities in the days and weeks leading up to a tragedy like this, such as giving your nephew a ride to the gun shop multiple times. Personally, I don't think that there is one single thing that any of us can point to where we can summarily say who is to blame. When it comes to prevention, I mean, aside from blaming the shooter himself for doing this in the first place. In the case of the Robb Elementary School shooting, there is so much out there that has been documented. Step by step and day by day, we saw the path to that day unfold in real time as I went through in this episode. While it's too late to do anything about what happened on that day, I think that everyone who needs to can learn from this without even going back through the attacker's childhood, just starting with him getting kicked out of his mom's house. He goes to grandma's. He becomes withdrawn. He turns dark. His troubling online posting, his messages, pictures, videos, nicknames, usernames. The attacker literally laid out his plan in plain sight. He worked, he earned money, he hoarded it under the noses of his family. 
Before the age of 18, he purchased gun accessories, a hellfire trigger, a laser sight, a ballistic vest, among other weapon accessories. The day he turned 18, he purchased a cache of AR-style rifles and the deadliest ammo that he could purchase, purchases his family knew about. I mean, the knee-jerk reaction is to cry foul at the gun laws. However, considering the recent midterm election results in the state, it kind of seems like Texas is satisfied with the way that things are. I by no means want to seem glib or flippant, but these are the results six months out from the state's deadliest school shooting in history and the third deadliest in the nation. And the election wasn't even really close. So with that being said, I would prefer to look at those things that the average person can do on a day-to-day basis to affect change. Like, maybe not give our troubled nephew a ride to the gun shop. I just think the attacker's family could have done more to help this young man because clearly he needed it. And going to the voting booth wasn't going to stop him. It sounded like he had some family support, like his cousin and his uncle to an extent, despite the fact that he did take him to the gun store. I just don't think the uncle realized just how troubled his nephew was. And that is a problem that has nothing to do with guns. It takes knowledge and understanding and a basic grasp on mental health red flags. What do we trace that lack of understanding to? Parenting, education, poverty, resources, access. This is when families, whether we know it or not, rely on the school system. Teachers and administrators are the ones who have the education and the know-how and the ability to recognize when a child is at risk and intervention is needed, but that didn't happen either. The attacker just up and stopped going to school and nobody ever did a thing about it. 100 days or more per school year, starting around the age of 14, maybe ninth grade, I can't even begin to imagine what the attacker was doing and getting into day in and day out at the ages of 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, when nobody was paying attention. What do we do? These are the things that I'm never really going to be able to land on a clear answer for. And I'm not sure if there really is one. But to think, what if a person, that one person, just one, came into this young man's life and made a difference? A family member, a close friend, a teacher, a coach, a mentor. It could have sent him on a very different path than the one he chose. The last time I talked about 77 minutes on the show, ironically, very ironically, was the mass shooting 
at the McDonald's in San Ysidro, California in 1984. I watched the documentary entitled 77 Minutes. I named the episode with 77 minutes in the title. I chose this event for this episode because those same 77 minutes of hesitation we saw almost four decades ago when that gunman also gunned down 21 innocent people. I got dinged by a couple of listeners for placing a measure of the responsibility on the gunman's wife for recognizing her husband's mental health issues and failing to take any action to seek help or intervention. I may or may not have been too harsh on her, that's a matter of opinion, but it doesn't change how I feel about family being our first line of defense when it comes to troubled individuals with mental health problems and suicidal ideation. When it comes to these 77 minutes in Texas, there were plenty of red flags. And it really was an entire community, both in life and online, that chose to look the other way. All anyone needed to know was right there in front of their faces and their computers. We did not need another lesson in learning how to prevent this from happening again. And to be honest with you, I'm sick and tired of the lessons. Our thoughts go out to the families of all the victims that lost their lives on that tragic day. I did not open this episode with the usual introduction, the announcements, the social media stuff out of respect for the victims of the Rob Elementary School tragedy. California Dreaming will be donating 15% of next month's Patreon contributions to Uvalde's Verified Victims GoFundMe. If you are a member of Patreon, your contribution will be included, and if you're not, you may join by November 30th to be included. Thank yous will come in a future episode. I'd like to thank you so much for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams.